night Talking movies with two guys named Mike They usually cover films that win gold But this series is all Tarantino Rumors and a few of these Michael Madsons in like five Here we go talking the movies of Q MMOs reviewing movies of Q's Tarantino The rewatch series brought to you by MMO And we're back. Welcome once again. Another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Another Tarantino rewatch. Uh, getting into the big episodes and the big movies of Quentin Tarantino's in the lead up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I am your co-host, Mike Wan. This is co-host also Mike. Also Mike here, dancing like I'm in the 1940s, but looking like I'm in the 1980s? Sure. <laughs> I guess. We're doing Pulp Fiction. For the Quentin Tarantino, his second movie in his filmography here. We're doing all the Quentin Tarantino directorial filmography in the lead-up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is the one that's most, I would say, attributed to the logo that we have. Absolutely. Uh, for this rewatch series where you're doing John Travolta's dance move and I'm holding a cigarette in Uma's wig. I love uh, that. A lot so of wigs much. in this movie. A lot of wigs in this movie, but they look damn good. They do. And there's, a, they really there's do. some stories about some of them, which is going to be fun to get into. We're going to get into all of that and more. If you've not joined us before for a Quentin Tarantino rewatch series episode, what they are is, like most of our episodes, they're two reviews for the price of one, but this one's a little different. We have a non-spoiler section, a breakdown, and a spoiler section. We think at the top that this is going to go two episodes, so we'll have a non-spoiler episode and a spoiler episode. But regardless, what we go put into the non-spoiler episode to make it a little different is we differentiate them by putting in some uh, instead of our our expectations necessarily we recap the first time where we were when we first saw these movies we talk about the highlighting the songs that quentin tarantino uses what made him dance on set we highlight the homages that he's done throughout his movies here we also uh have a little performance piece that'll probably be the beginning of the spoiler section so it'll be the beginning of the next episode but along with the spoiler section we also differentiate that by having what we call trademark tarantino scenes when we're talking about the plot and the ins and outs and all the spoilers and we also go over some Quentin Tarantino screenwriting advice as well as some little known Easter eggs and connections into the Tarantino verse. We try to highlight the things that aren't as well known and, and not so much talking about how the John Travolta character from this movie is the brother from Michael Madsen's character in Reservoir Dogs. We try to go a little deeper than that uh, for some stuff that maybe the most ardent Quentin Tarantino fans don't know. That's how we differentiate these episodes from regular Oscar Sprint profiles from part of our Pixar series rewatch. I'm excited because we're just fresh off a Pixar series rewatch and now we got to talk about Pulp Fiction and heroin and adrenaline injections and all this fun stuff. Yeah, same as Pixar. Yeah, whatever. Pretty same. much in lockstep with one another here. So the way we're going to start this episode focusing on Pulp Fiction is Mike is going to run down the cast and crew. So after Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino sells the scripts for True Romance, which comes out in 1993, and Natural Born Killers, which will come out in the same year as Pulp Fiction 1994. As an actor, stuff that Tarantino did before Dogs comes out in these few years, Michael. He played a bit part as an asylum attendant in a movie about an Elvis impersonator who goes crazy. <laughs> that was in 1992's Eddie Presley. <laughs> Go figure. Never even heard of that. So he literally... Quentin was an Elvis impersonator on the Golden Girls in 1988, and now he's an, an, an 
Elvis impersonator going nuts movie. Even his bit parts, they like follow this strange arc. <laughs> you would have thought too he would have injected some Elvis into some of these movies, but I guess maybe those rights were a little harder to come by. There will be an Elvis yeah. suit, a golden uh, suit that comes into a later movie, but yes, not yet. Quentin was the voice actor in a in a short film. He played Sid in a film called Sleep with Me with yeah. Eric Stoltz. He'll be like the Lebowski like. In a bathrobe drug dealer here in Pulp Fiction. Could have and should have been the Michael J. Fox character from Back to the Future. That's originally. good. That's true. He looks yeah. like him. Well, he was a cast in it before yeah. Fox got the role. Yeah. Oh, my God. Look at those diverging yeah. roads in the yellow wood. I often <laughs> quote poetry. And there it is again. Uh, but... <laughs> Quentin also played a bartender in the Harvey Keitel Buscemi film, Somebody to Love. So he does all that stuff and comes out with all that stuff in those few years. How happy were those filmmakers of those little movies to say, Quentin Tarantino's involved with our thing. It's just, it gives Hollywood an even worse name. That they're sitting <laughs> on these properties they have no interest in putting out at all to focus on the creativity that went into them. But as soon as they see somebody happens to be uber famous that's attached to it, oh, maybe this could make us money. Get it out there. Let people see it. <laughs> the Asylum attendant gets <laughs> right. like all this voiceover narration all of a sudden <laughs> in Eddie Presley. As for the uh, Pulp Fiction cast, I got some vignettes on each of the major cast members here. John Travolta plays Vincent Vega, mm. again, brother of Vic Vega, the uh, Michael Madsen character. They could have used different first names, too, because all throughout my notes, I was like typing Vic the first Me time, too. and I was Me just too. wrong. So... Travolta became a huge movie star in the late 70s, early 80s after being a bit of a TV star with Welcome Back, Cotter, etc., etc. But his 80s were a drought, and only the Look Who's Talking trilogy kind of made money for Travolta during that late 80s, early 90s. So he does Pulp Fiction kind of at rock bottom, and once he does it, he's an A-lister again. He's yeah. got Jet Shorty to Face Off to Primary Colors to Swordfish, all the way to Hairspray, etc., etc., He'd never have another drought like that again in Culminating his career. in the cinematic hit that was Battlefield Earth. Battlefield Earth almost <laughs> nosedived him once more, but it somehow didn't. Uh, this role was supposed to go to Michael Madsen, as I said, but Madsen took a part in Wyatt Earp, the yes. Kevin Costner film, rather than going to this, and Quentin wouldn't forgive him for that until years later. It's also a story that's going to play a part in one of the Easter eggs that we have at the end of the spoiler section uh, with that, with, about that role as well. Tarantino becomes transfixed with Travolta after an all-day meetup in the same apartment that, Mike, rumor has it, Quentin was living in at the time and Travolta used to live in. Do you think Travolta just bullshitted him there and just said, hey, by the way, I, li- I used to live in this place. <laughs> uh, Get the shot! That's a great story, but I couldn't help but think of like my sophomore year in college, some random dude came knocking on the door of my dorm. And he and said, like, Get oh. the shot! <laughs> He's like, I used to live here. I'm like, oh. Okay, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I don't care. It wasn't like Amelie where you had to look under the floorboards for a secret. No. Uh, no. no. A broad city, there's weed hidden in the walls. Oh, of that. Yeah. Okay. Very nice. No. Well, they bonded over that apparently. But here's the thing Weinstein and company at, at Miramax, they did not want Travolta in this part. Yeah. Travolta was kind of toxic at the time. And it came down to a last second demand by Tarantino in those negotiations minutes before Miramax bought the rights to this film. So it was either Travolta's in it or we're going to somebody else. Yeah, and final say is a big reason that 
Miramax had the rights to this script and not TriStar, whose hands the uh, the script was in originally, and Quentin Tarantino wanted final say, and Miramax gave it to him, and TriStar wouldn't. That's why it ended up with the Weinstein Company. Makes some sense. Now, Samuel Jackson was already beginning to break out. He had been in a bunch of Spike Lee roles. We covered his part as the radio uh, DJ, the guy that we aspire to be and do the right thing. Yes. He also got parts in big movies, Patriot Games and Jurassic Park. He had lead roles in Amos and Andrew Fresh. He was also in Menace to Society. So his star is on the rise. And what's awesome about Samuel L's career is that even after Pulp Fiction, Mike, he kind of balances it with big studio films, for example, A Time to Kill, big studio film. But he also finds his way into Paul Thomas Anderson's debut movie, Hard Eight. So this is this is in his entire career, Samuel, and we love him for it. Do you ever wonder why these actors are so passionate about working for virtually no-name directors? They don't like, care. Why does Samuel Jackson want to work for PTA so badly? Because he sees it movie? on the script. He sees that the it? talent on the script. He sees the talent in the roles. I think it's that clear. And, and if you read a Tarantino script, at the, and he sa- everybody said it throughout this making of process, it's so different. It's theatrical. It's so, it's so strange. And they just noticed it immediately, just like Harvey Keitel did in our Rever- Reservoir Dogs backstory. Yeah, and if you go back and read some of the history about this movie, you have Bruce Willis going to Tarantino to want to be in it. You have Samuel L., what you're going to talk about, going to Tarantino wanting to be in it. The Easter egg that I alluded to already, it's another huge name actor that's actively seeking out this role. It's like, this is this guy's second movie. Right. It's insane to me. It's amazing. So legend has it, Mike, Jackson was about to lose his second Tarantino role because he went for a role in Reservoir Dogs and didn't get it. Paul Calderon had the inside track to get this part. Calderon would wind up being Paul, the bartender slash fixer for Marcellus Wallace in this movie. Yeah, who does like nothing does nothing. How would you like to go from Jules to that role? He's got a great line. I'm just Paul and that's between <laughs> you. But you're right. Uh, he doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. And that could have been Samuel Jackson's yeah. line. So they're going to a final audition in, uh, I forget if it's New York or L.A. And they're both coming to the spot at the same time. Calderon and Samuel Jackson. Tarantino is late. And Sam Sam is just stewing. And he's starving. And he goes out and he gets fast food. He gets goes to a burger joint, comes back, as they said, stinking of fast food. And I don't know if it was the self-loathing of having eaten said fast food, the influx of salt, Mike, or the saturated fats. <laughs> but that gave him the rage fuel Jackson needed to channel everything jewels and win this part in a landslide depending on who you believe and who's telling this story a producer of this film walked bumped into jackson before the audition before he got in the room with tarantino and others and he said something to the effect of i love your work mr fishburn (laughs) and that would be turned into a long-running joke throughout sam jackson's career and it's actually he highlights it in one of the previews for the new shaft movie that's coming out Mm -hmm. said i'm tired of being compared to lawrence fishburn but that actually uh if again if you believe who's telling this story uh, he was pissed off being mistaken for Lawrence Fishburne going in for this audition. And that would also give me any reason to go out for fast food as well. <laughs> any reason I need, Mike, I go out and use it. All right, so Tarantino really has to sell Uma Thurman. Julia Louis-Dreyfus 
originally turned down the role of Mia Wallace because of her responsibilities to, to Seinfeld. That would have been so something. yeah, so Quentin becomes fixated on Thurman. Uh, she had made a name for herself in Dangerous Liaisons, Henry and June, Where the Heart Is, and Final Analysis. But once again, you know, QT kind of finds an actress at a low point because she had just done Gus Van Zant's Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, Mike, and that was a total flop. Yeah. So. All these characters are kind of on a low point, maybe except for Samuel, even though right with that audition he was. Apparently, Tarantino has to call, and this sounds crazy, but he has to call Uma Thurman, and he just started reading the whole script to her over the phone. Yeah, so was she impressed or was she worn down and didn't want to pay the phone bill? <laughs> I don't know. He also had like all-day meetings with her at restaurants. Can you yeah. imagine that? I just want all-day meetings at restaurants, Mike. I don't think future. Uma Thurman did. I don't think she did. But how fun. Like, we would love that. Let's do it. All right, let's get breakfast. Yeah. Let's argue for two hours. And then let's get lunch. Yeah, Uma Thurman, I don't think, has the same digestive tract that you or I share, though. <laughs> but he does convince Uma Thurman to do it, of course. Bruce Willis, he did Death Becomes Her. Obviously, that's two diehard movies. The Player. So he's a huge star. And yet... His action movie career is kind of plateauing. Hudson Hawk is a flop. Yeah. The Last Boy Scout and Striking Distance are okay. If you've never seen The Last Boy Scout, just watch the opening scene, please. It's terrible. It's, it's amazing. It's amazingly <laughs> terrible. And Striking Distance is ridiculous. Too. I don't think I've ever seen Striking Distance. I'm not a fan. So Willis wants the role of Vega, uh, which he felt was the lead. But he wanted to be in the movie so bad that he decided to take the lesser role at the end of the day and a pay cut. Tarantino originally promised the movie to Matt Dillon. Yeah. But Dillon basically ends that face-to-face -face meeting with Tarantino saying he'll sleep on it. And apparently, as legend has it, Tarantino calls his agent right out of that meeting and says, all right, Dillon's out. If he can't tell me to my face that he wants to part. Now, yeah, I see you shaking your right. head here. Because I wonder if Tarantino had Willis in yep. his sights. Or I wonder if, I don't know, I'm going to want to say it in his back pocket, because that would be arrogant to say. Well, he's also on record of saying that once we got Bruce Willis, we were able to get more funding, and we were able, we finally got our movie star attached that Harvey, the Weinsteins both wanted, yeah. so it was a full go from there, I knew I had something, so I, I kind of, in reading the same research you did, I was like, okay, so he promised it to his buddy Matt Dillon, he knew Willis was available, he said, oh shit, how do I get out of this Dillon deal? And this is what he defaulted to, and said, okay, you don't want it, fine, it's going to Bruce Willis. <laughs> I can totally see that. Totally see that uh, rewriting of history as well. So Harvey Keitel plays the wolf. After 92, Keitel Mike acted in guess how many movies in the next two years? How many? That's a good question. 14. 14 movies. <laughs> the highlights are the piano and clockers. So talk about a guy who gets his reps. Yeah, no kidding. After huh? Reservoir Dogs, through to Pulp Fiction, 14 movies, including those two Tarantino films. Good Unbelievable. Lord. Yeah. But what a he, work ethic. He started to blow up. Well, he was already a decent star, but he started really started to blow up and be in everything. Yeah. Tim Roth plays Pumpkin, yeah, he's a.k.a. Back. Ringo, I guess. He did not really become an overnight star after Dogs, but he did a TV movie, which was Heart of Darkness. He did a miniseries. He does an indie film. And, you know, he's, he's getting work. But he does become somewhat of a regular now on studio films after this Pulp Fiction role. 
So you will go through Tim Roth throughout Tarantino because he's in a bunch of them. But his counterpart in this movie, Amanda Plummer, she plays Honey Bunny, and she was in Joe versus the Volcano, The Fisher King. So I married an axe murmurer or murmurer. Yep, one of those two. That'd be uh, ours. Before Pulp, axe murmurer. Oh no, <laughs> it's somebody that sleeps with a sharp object and can't stop night talking. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, but afterwards, she gets. 13! 13 roles in the next three years. So it's not necessarily Keitel amount of productivity, but that's that's a lot of work. A couple things to remember about the movie industry in that time, too, is that this was the highlight for independent film. I mean, this, this proved this movie broke all the glass ceilings with what an independent film could be and could do. So there was probably a lot more chances for anyone with any sort of name recognition to work if they wanted to. And I think it kind of became cool for them to do bit parts in, in movies that they respected right. after Pulp Fiction, right? Right. And also, it was a burgeoning industry still in the 90s. You right. had a lot of mid-budget, low-budget movies coming out that are still attached to big studios. Not like you have today, where they're all just going to streaming platforms and stay-at-home stuff. So uh, those opportunities to be on a set and do something that's going to end up in a movie theater were probably more available to people with name recognition and people that wanted to work, like you say, back then than they are today. I wonder if we'll look at this net. Netflix boom in a similar fashion and just like assume like streaming is just going to become a big part of movie going or movie watching and we'll look at this it's going to be interesting way. to see where we're going with this too because the quantity is there yeah oh yeah. it really is yeah you know, yeah. we, we literally try to watch everything. Except throughout. it's all housed under like three umbrellas now as true. opposed to there being a multitude of studios out there. Very true. As for the rest of the cast, Mike, Pulp Fiction also stars Dwayne Walker, Laura Lovelace, Angela Jones, Maria de Medeiros, Rosanna Arquette, Frank Whaley, Burr Steers, Phil Lamar, Steve Buscemi is the waiter, Buddy Holly, yeah. Kathy Grip- Griffin apparently plays herself <laughs> just on the street. I saw that as well. I love this performance so much. Wait, we'll get to it. Tarantino Tino plays Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Christopher Walken is Captain Coons. And of course, Marcellus Wallace is played by future Mission Impossible film series regular Ving Rhames. Thank God he cut himself on the neck right before filming. <laughs> he did. We'll talk about that uh, as we go on. We'll talk about some specs right now and some year in review stuff for Pulp Fiction. Writer director Quentin Tarantino. The lone other credit, again, going to Roger Avery. He gets the stories by credit. Avery's name popped up as well in the Reservoir Dogs episode. However, this is going to be the final credit credit Avery shares on any Tarantino property. If you remember, Avery was the other movie store rental clerk that worked alongside Tarantino. They supposedly wrote in tandem a couple scripts together, including Reservoir Dogs, supposedly including Pulp Fiction. If you ask why this is the last credit Avery shares on a Tarantino property, you'd don't really find a suitable answer. Reading some interviews, the latter Avery has done over the years, you get the sense that he's never really been all too pleased with just getting this story by credit here for Pulp Fiction. However, residuals. <laughs> well, he, he does say that he, he thanks Tarantino for his life and says Pulp Fiction gave him his house and his lovely living and he gets to pick and choose what properties he wants to use as he's still uh, someone that touches up scripts in Hollywood to this day. Uh, but he underhandedly would also say that Tarantino sometimes adapted other words of Avery's on his own to use in other properties. This was all courtesy of the, an interview Avery did with The Independent in 2003. Yeah, yeah definitely they had a rift there. Unfortunately. Something happened, and for if you know it, certainly let me know and point me towards the source. But I looked for a while. I couldn't find anything where Avery said, yes, this is exactly what went down and why there's kind of distrust. Well, Avery sued Tarantino for like the, for, for the rights at the time, and he dropped the lawsuit. Right. Yeah. So, so screenwriting credit, yeah, screenplay. 
yeah, and for his part in that interview and in other interviews, he said, you know, he at least attempts to come off more as a guy that's very gracious and humble and thankful for Tarantino than he is an ex, a bitter ex-confidant. So. Yeah, it, Quentin wanted to, to say written and directed by Quentin Tarantino at the beginning of the movie, right. and he kind of pressured his buddy to just get a story by credit. They still went up onto the Oscar stage together, even though I think they were mid kind of rift at that time, but they, they kind of remain somewhat friends throughout I they think. say they say he said Avery for his part at least anyway said they still talk right. and they talk about the movies they're working on separately they don't sure. really share secrets or anything like that he said so uh, interesting very interesting I would love to read that book someday Pulp would open at the film festival which brought Reservoir Dogs and Tarantino his greatest word of mouth in Cannes on May 21st 1994 it would open in the US later in the year on October 14th whereas Reservoir Dogs never reached more than a handful of theaters I think we said it topped out around 69 theaters in the US at its most available, Pulp Fiction would become a sort of widespread phenomenon as it played in as many as 1,494 theaters across the country, eventually bringing in $213.9 million at the worldwide box office on a measly $8 million budget. This, in and of itself, is impressive enough, but even more when you consider the film was the first independent film ever to gross more than $200 million. Wow. This shattered a lot of notions of what an independent film could be. And Tarantino kept saying, like, it's going to be mo money. It's basically going to do, like, $34 million off an $8 million budget. And he kept lowering and lowering expectations mm. to the point where Miramax was just like, no, this is going to be huge. It's going to be huge. And Tarantino <laughs> was the one kind of poo-pooing it for a while. And then when it blew up, of course, you know, Miramax loved him all the more. Interestingly enough, it did take the film a while to hit the $100 million mark domestically. I think it took 170 plus days in yeah. domestic theaters to get to 100 million so it, it was languishing there but people were still going to see it and still enjoying it so it kind of also broke the, the idea that independent films have to be in and out of theaters quickly this one proved that it could last for five six months some interesting side stories in Down and Dirty Pictures by Peter Biskin. Obviously, it involves Miramax and, and how that company came to be. So I don't want to go into too many of those, but you know, listen to that uh, audio book. It's a great audio book. Really shows you the both sides of Harvey Weinstein in many ways. Yeah. And, and Miramax and just how they bought the movie. Mike was crazy because you know he's on a plane and he reads the first scene and he has to basically halt the whole plane from taking off so he can make a call on his cell phone to tell these guys i'm in for the script is it as good the rest of the way through as it is after those first few scenes or whatever he read and they're like yes okay fine then now the plane can leave Just <laughs> what a, a tough lunatic. life of studio executive has mm -hmm. hey i read one page you want eight million dollars <laughs> it was in but right from the first page he wasn't uh lawrence bender would again be listed as a producer on the film and was once again tasked with finding the script a home originally like i said it was in the hands of tristar but due to a litany of reasons take your pick among budgetary issues tristar not believing in the story or Tarantino's insistence on final cut and final say for a movie exceeding two hours, the film eventually found its way, again, like Mike just told you, to the Weinstein-owned Miramax company, which had recently been purchased by Disney. Miramax would wholly fund the film, which would be the company's first time doing so for any movie, and it would even be the first film given the green light after the Disney acquisition of Miramax. So, yes, as a fun bit of trivia, technically, Pulp Fiction is a Disney movie. Unbelievable. <laughs> it, what's wild, though, too, about Lawrence Bender is that he's like the first producer who actually ever talks to Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino yeah. 
Tarantino spent like eight or nine years just bugging producers, bugging agents, getting rejected every single time. He talks to this low-level producer, Lawrence Bender, who makes this movie for $100,000 called The Intruder. And then basically they form a lifetime partnership. And that's why I asked the question, like, why did Sam Jackson, why is Sam Jackson able to see the potential in a guy like Tarantino? And yet all these producers can't give him the time. It's got to be a network of somebody, some agent or somebody getting their hands on it and just knowing the right person that says this movie is going to make a jillion dollars. Get your client on it. So the people that saw it saw it immediately. Yeah. That, that, that backed it, essentially. As for the time capsule for setting versus where Tarantino was writing the script, there's a wonderful Vanity Fair article, Mike and I have both alluded to it, written by Mark Seal, photos taken by Annie Leibovitz, in which Tarantino recounts having spent a quarter year in Amsterdam in 1992, working on a script that would need serious revisions, but finally having accomplished at least some version of what can be considered a first draft of the film, written by hand, occupying a dozen notebooks. Uh, over under, Mike. 17 royales with cheese. How many do you think he ate? <laughs> Apparently, uh, the devil's uh, grass was a, a big part in writing this script. From I'm going to say over. I'm yeah. going to say over. <laughs> it's again probably fair to say that the grown man leasing a one-room apartment in Amsterdam trying to write a screenplay even before his first movie became a hit wasn't all that concerned with the goings-on in the world and trying to reflect them in his script. But in all honesty, in all seriousness, go seek out and read that Vanity Fair article. Yeah. It has a wealth of information. It was a wonderful read. Betty Boop was the name of the car shop that he went to every day before he went to McDonald's, I guess. Uh, anyway, the film would not only go on to shatter all sorts of box office records for an indie film, but it would be responsible for landing Quentin Tarantino his lone Oscar win to date, which he perhaps ironically shares with Avery for Best Original Screenplay from the 1995 Academy Awards. It was nominated in six other categories on the night as well. Editing, supporting actor for Samuel L. Jackson, supporting actress for Uma, lead actor for Travolta, director and best picture, but missed out on all of those in what is considered one of the greatest years of film ever. Editing, lead actor, director, and best picture were each lost to Forrest Gump. And for what it's worth, Tarantino did get his revenge for his water dance snubbing from the 92 Independent Spirit Awards with Pulp Fiction landing him male lead, screenplay, and director wins on the night there before finally taking home the best feature prize at the Indie Spirit Awards as well. So back to the Academy uh, push with the, with the Oscars there. Weinstein and company, they really pinpointed what they wanted to do. And this just reeks of better call Saul, Mike. Yeah. Saul Goodman and, you know, the Breaking Bad spinoff. They found, like, retirement homes where Academy members lived in, like, the hundreds. And they purposely campaigned. They sent a bunch of people to literally wine and dine and bring all these old people just desperate for attention. Wow. Desperate for... It's just to conversate with them and try and sell the film. And they, they spent a lot of their money and their resources on doing this. Talk about when the Academy Smart. was old, but that's how they campaigned. And it was a $100,000 campaign, which was much more than Forrest Gump's. It didn't work necessarily for all the Oscar gold, but you alluded to it earlier. The box office lasted a long time, yeah. and this movie did very well with the pre- and post-Oscar nomination push. It's a blueprint that would be followed to success by Bohemian Rhapsody at the mm -hmm. Golden Globes last year, where it ended up winning Best Drama. Absolutely. I don't need to go through every critic score number for you. It's Pulp Fiction. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. If you haven't seen it, you probably aren't listening to this episode in the first place. But I will just say it's ranked number 8 on the list of the IMDb Top 250 films. It's number 95 on AFI's Top 100 Films list, though that AFI list came out a mere 3-plus years after Pulp 
Pulp Fiction itself debuted, so it would likely be higher were they to redo the list. Before recency bias existed. Right. <laughs> it's number five on the Hollywood Reporter's 2014 list of Hollywood's 100 favorite films, and it's number five as well on Empire's 100 Greatest Movies list from 2018. Incredible. And it makes sense. Some people have called it the most influential film of all time. Probably since, the greatest indie film ever made. Since Citizen Kane. You know, yeah. They, they, they say. Plot premise reads, Mike, the lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster and his wife, and a pair of diner bandits intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption. Mike, do you remember where you first saw this film and what you thought of it. I do. And I alluded to this in our Reservoir Dogs segment, uh, this part of the, that episode, where I saw Pulp Fiction first. A lot of people saw Pulp Fiction first and then went back and go see Reservoir Dogs. That's why Reservoir Dogs has made like something like $25 million just on DVD sales. Yeah. But I saw Pulp Fiction first. I was in college at UConn. I think it was a freshman. I think I saw it in my dorm on one of those extremely legal streaming sites that all colleges had. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, think I, I think my buddies and I downloaded it there. We saw it there and... That kind of, like I said in the last episode, that kind of kicked off a little bit of the uh, the film criticism in me about, wow, this is amazing. Why doesn't everybody do this? This makes a lot of sense to do for a movie. And I got interested in Tarantino's filmography. This would have been 2006, 2005, something like that. So there was enough there for me to go back and rewatch at that time of his. And I became a huge fan of Tarantino's. And I think after watching this, if you get exposure to this for the first time, it's tough not to be a fan of Tarantino's. But what about yourself? Do you remember watching this for the first time? I think it was in high school, around 2000. I don't remember where and when I first watched this movie, but I have glimpses in just my parents' living room. So I yeah. think what I did was I just rented the film and I took it home and watched it by myself like late night or something like that. So this I was thinking about. This had to be a stereotypical also Mike Blockbuster rental. This had yeah, to be. I think it was. So <laughs> so I do remember freaking the heck out in the middle of the movie by what happens. It was pretty scarring, but I loved much of it. I hated some of it. I wanted to understand this movie. It was such a crazy watch experience. It's something sure. that I've been studying ever since, and I'm so glad we get to do this today. And it, it holds up, which is the most amazing part. If you strip everything away, I don't really think there's anything to suggest this is a 1994 movie. Yeah. Uh, you could watch this today and think it's maybe, what, a 2000-made movie? Other than maybe the radio-switching channels. Like, do you think, fast forward 10 years, any millennial going to know what that means? It's a fair point. <laughs> it's a fair like, point. What's that static? Yeah. <laughs> Why is there commercials? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so let's get into production values. We're going to go sight to sound here, and we're also going to infuse our Oscar lens throughout this non-spoiler review, Mike. So I'm going to start with cinematography, if I could. This camera moves a lot from the handheld camera of the dance sequence, which is really fun. You know, you get the close-ups and it moves with the peace sign across mm -hmm. the face and all the dancing to the slow circular pan. And he uses a slow circular pan when freaking Bruce Willis is just on a phone in a phone booth. Yeah, he's got a lot of those classic Tarantino shots and I, I know we could talk about them in Trademark Tarantino but we're not giving anything away by talking about them here uh, there's the establishing shot he loved it in Reservoir Dogs he uses it still the, the dance sequence is being set up and it's just a slow zoom in from that one establishing shot yep. where we keep going in and in on Uma and John Travolta before they start doing their legendary dance there this is also, uh, he used a tracking shot that lasted a while, for, I think might have been the first time. I don't remember seeing it in Reservoir Dogs, but when he's following Bruce Willis, is re-entering re his apartment complex through yeah. the back way, 
We're we're just right behind the man. And it also cute to me, like how normal looking a dude Bruce Willis is just from behind. Like, yeah. if you're behind Bruce Willis in a line at Disney World, I wouldn't know I was behind, like, one of the biggest action stars yeah. in the world. He'll turn around and have all those furrowed, like, cheekbones, <laughs> right. and you'll be like, oh. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, that, I thought that was interesting, that he actually utilized a long-standing tracking shot that lasted a while and took us on this little adventure to the back way of the apartment. Yeah, I mean, the action movie shots really work, too. I mean, you got some shaky cam, you got mm-hmm. a bunch of stunts, and... Yeah, and you got, you got VFX that's that's uh, really strong. It's amazing. You got guys like Greg Nicotero who winds up on The Walking Dead, one of the I don't know if showrunners. I think he was a showrunner for a few seasons of it. Oh, really? He's a special effects blood and gore guy who works on this movie. Mike winds up you know having this huge career. So that's that's pretty wild too. In terms of like editing and you know kind of the overall director's chair of this movie i think some of the editing is hilarious and it's amazing to watch the behind the scenes stuff with tarantino actually calling out things and directives to his cast because he knows what the shots are going to do he knows the editing beforehand but he formed incredible partnership with the late great sally menke yeah his, his go-to editor there. We talked about her in Reservoir Dogs, yeah. And, and she just does a remarkable job. I think this is some of the strongest editing I've seen in a while. Now, maybe we don't notice editing in all these Oscar movies necessarily because it's kind of watch them a couple times and we don't study them as much. We don't live with them as much as we've done with Pulp Fiction. Right. I, I've probably seen this movie 11 or 12 sure. times. Yeah. And I, so I'm going to notice point. those little yeah, things. Uh, yeah, you're going to be... Uh, the, the more you watch something, the more you're looking for other things that aren't the obvious, as yeah. opposed to us doing these Oscar sprint profiles night of, where we can just report what we see for the first time on screen. Yeah. But some of the editing is absolutely hilarious, to get back to my original point, because you have these reveals of the you know change of clothes at Jimmy's. You have the Marvin stuff in the car before what happens there. You have the bullet holes reveal in the apartment. Now, I'm not spoiling them as I'm being vague enough, but... Those things are crazy. They blow your mind. And, of course, when the camera stops moving and you got Marcellus Wallace showing up in a shot, holy shit. It also, you allude to the bullet holes. There's a a scene with a mannequin that has a face that's (laughs) supposed to represent someone that does not have a face at one point that's in a trunk at at a certain point in this movie as well. There's easy mistakes that could have been done away with that he left in and we give him the benefit of the doubt there they are. become like movie lore, as opposed to like if any other director were to do it, we'd we'd just be outraged. Like how lazy is this that you couldn't edit around this? I don't know why that is. I don't know why we're so quick to just reward Tarantino and persecute other people. But Lawrence Bender had some interesting things to say about Quentin. He's like he's always going to come in under budget, and he takes pride in that, and he's done it pretty huh? much for every movie. And he, he kind of just yada yada some scenes that he doesn't think are important or that he right. thinks are just going to be on screen very quickly and he doesn't get precious about those scenes he stays on schedule and he's just one of those guys that's a very quote-unquote according to bender a responsible director so that makes some sense and and you can even see like during the behind all the behind the scenes stuff where tarantino's like all right am i really gonna put ving rames in front of that car and get knocked over on top of that car again onto the mattress. Am I really going to do that to him again for a fourth or a fifth take? Or am I going to check with my guys first really quickly and succinctly and see if I got enough? Yeah. And he, he's got people telling him in that behind the scenes nugget, I think we got to do it again. And he's like, do I have this? Do I have that? No, we don't have to do it again. I'm not going to hit Ving Rames with a car again. And yet, 
instead of ever facing any kind of person, like that bullet hole has yeah. become its own lore <laughs> in, in, in in cinematic history. It, it, it's become its own story as is Jules a deity? Does does he believe he has? Does you know was no. that there beforehand? Was that a sign from God? It's this old this old thing. It's like no, it's just Quentin staying it's on just schedule because he's had to budget his <laughs> right. whole entire life having no money. Right. For the last ten years, this guy's basically lived on people's couches, so he knows what it is to have no money. Right. And he finally gets it's, some. He's responsible. It's amazing. It. It, it really is amazing. So director, there's got to be so many directors out there that are just like this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so the director category that year, the award went to Robert Zemeckis for Forrest Gump, Woody Allen, Bullets Over Broadway, Robert Redford Quiz Show, and oh my goodness, yeah, he's Lowski for Red, which I saw. I don't like the colors. This trilogy. movie, sorry, Pulp Fiction had no chance at winning anything major other than screenplay. Yeah, no chance. Not in '94. Yeah, Forrest Gump was going to sweep, yep. and that wasn't a big surprise to anybody, including Tarantino, on the Oscar stage. He's like, this is probably the only award we're going to win tonight, so he said that on the stage. Yeah, well, he, he knew, yeah. and the 90s was probably the Academy's most hoidiest. Right. Because they had no one to really challenge them. Any critics knew they would, wouldn't get access to these to these films to see them early anyway. They didn't really have to answer to anybody. They were the prestige. There wasn't this fervor like we have on film Twitter now that, oh, the indie spirits are coming up. Let's see one of those. Let's see what they have now. It was the Oscars and that's it. <laughs> yeah, true. But if we had a podcast or a radio show back then, we would have been screaming for this sure, movie to win sure. over Forrest Gump, which is, of course. continues to happen in our, our history. But Forrest Gump also won Best Film Editing, Mike, Hoop Dreams, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank, Redemption, and Speed were also nominated. I mean, look, I mean, Forrest Gump's the editing. We, that, yeah, that was it's good. Yeah. But yeah, before Pulp, it's time. Pulp Fiction is special, and sure. I, I love Sally Menken's work here. And uh, I, I just think it really does a lot in, 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 in very smart ways. Tarantino is just all over it as well with all his little touches of wit. It's more, ironically, it's more classic film editing that Tarantino displays here as opposed to something like Forrest Gump, Zemeckis, who's always toying with the video effects and the video editing effects of putting his Tom Hanks in 1994 right next to John F. Kennedy from 1963. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that whole, that's why it was wowing at that's, that time. That's why. So. And it, there's a lot of montage in Forrest Gump, which yeah. is very good. And a lot of music videos, essentially, to all that great music. We get it. We get it. I still think, you know, Tarantino's quality over quantity. In terms of the designs, Mike, and we already mentioned uh, makeup and hairstyling, I do think these wigs are good. Uh, really good. You want to tell the Jerry Curl story? Basically, uh, <laughs> one of the prop hands went out and bought a bunch of wigs, and Tarantino wanted an afro. A giant afro, a from giant what the, uh, the reports were, yeah. And Samuel Jackson essentially loved the Jerry Curl wig because he knew that at the time NWA was a big thing, mm. and all of the quote unquote gangbangers, the real life ones, had Jerry Curls. So he's like, this is Jules. This is what he would really look like at the time. And he sold Tarantino on it. And to Tarantino's credit, Tarantino is sellable. If somebody gives him a good idea, like Marvin will later on, Phil Lamar, yep. he will go with it, especially if it's funny or if it fits. I wonder how much of that remains in 2019, Tarantino. 
versus 1993 Tarantino being told by Samuel L. Jackson, I want to do this for my character. And this is this guy's second time working on directing a feature. He's still in the the honeymoon stage, the too good to be true stage. My life is going this well. All right, I'll listen. I get lost in the hypothetical, if you can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of those production and costume designs, though, Mike, I think Jack Rabbit Slims is one of my favorite settings I of all time. I so wish that place existed. It doesn't, right? No. I tried to look it up everywhere. I thought it existed. I know Miramax wanted to create a chain restaurant uh, out of it. They never did. I'm shocked they didn't because you would think that would, even if not a chain, if you have like two or three locations in major cities. Yeah. Put a Jackrabbit Slims in Vegas? Like, put it next to Madame Toussaint's. You have the, the wax figures there anyway. Just have people cosplaying as the wax figures. Like, my yeah. God. Isn't there one like that, in, but it's Broadway kind of I don't themed know. in New York? I wouldn't be surprised. It seems like an idea that's too good. Like, of course this should be, yeah. right? This That makes too much sense. So, in terms of the costume design, Mike, again, Ving Rhames cuts the back of his head yeah. when he's, back of his neck, really, when he's shaving his head. And Tarantino kind of runs with that and focuses the camera during his entire introduction Mm -hmm. on that Band-Aid and a whole mythology springs from that one shot. It's crazy. trying to think of directors that also had their moments in the 90s that maybe were over-persecuted for their decisions. And yet Tarantino, again, everything he does either turns into intentional or its own mythology. There's no mistake. It became iconic. It really did. And the fact that everybody ran with that connection to the MacGuffin. I wonder if he put that connection together while he was filming. That would have been some serious forethought. Because it seemed like it was just this happy accident yeah. that, and somehow it comes together or us fans are crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know which. Probably column A and column B. All right, so let's get into sound because this soundtrack is a banger. Sure is. What made Quentin dance here? Well, obviously he's literally dancing, and this is where I got this whole question and segment from, Mike. He's literally dancing to You Can Never Tell by Chuck Berry next to John Travolta and Uma Thurming <laughs> dancing to the handheld cam. Quentin is doing the goofy dark dancing to the side, and it just makes you love the guy. How even did if neither he's one of them laugh? Times, how did they not laugh? <laughs> but I just love a guy who just doesn't give an F. Sure. And he's just up there being himself. It's really endearing. It really is. He's just big, goofy knucklehead dancing like like a like a freaking kid. Yeah. I suppose to be a leader and that to have that much confidence as a director, you gotta at some point really not give a shit about what you look like at all in life. So this kind of goes right in line with that. But you're right. It absolutely is endearing. So The story behind that song is crazy, too. Quentin apparently grew up hearing his mother tell him that she always danced to that song while she was pregnant with him. Isn't that touching? Well, that's weird. Isn't it weird? (laughs) Touching? It makes you wonder if if that kind of stuff, when you put your headphones, like pregnant women are supposed to sing to their babies and have headphones on their babies to play certain songs, if you had that kind of prenatal connection, that would have been interesting. This man was conditioned for this scene since since inception, essentially. I love the opening credits, Mike, in this movie. He did a great job in Reservoir Dogs, but Miserloo by Dick Dale and his Deltones becomes, after the change of the radio (laughs) station, Jungle Boogie by Cool in the Game Gang. I love it. It's so innovative. It's so cool. So many great songs in this, like there are in Reservoir Dogs. You hit on those two, Miserloo, the Cool and the Gang song. Let's Stay Together by Al Green. Yeah. You have the Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield. You have Link Ray's Rumble. Some hits, some songs I didn't even know the name of until I looked them up. I had to shazam them in the middle of this, such as Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon by Urge Overkill. Yeah. is played when they get back to Mia's apartment. So, so just 
I had Great this soundtrack. CD and I, I gifted, don't doubt it. I've gifted the vinyl to my brother and I bought it as a gift and it's one of those that was in my rotation back when CDs was. A it's thing. fantastic. It just I can listen to Dusty Springfield and just the opening of Son of a Preacher Man. It's awesome. Honestly, probably for eight hours straight without getting sick of it. <laughs> yeah, you get obsessed with your song, with your song play. But I love the surfer California rock stuff. Too. Yeah, I really enjoy. Yeah, that. goes right in line with a uh, something called Big Kahuna, huh? Big Kahuna Burger. <laughs> All right, so the performances here again with that Oscar lens, Mike. How good are these performances, though? I mean, do we think they're Oscar-worthy necessarily? Let's start with supporting sure. actor. Martin Landau wins for Ed Wood as Bella Lugosi. An incredible performance. Yeah, he was good. You got Chaz Palminteri for Bullets Over Broadway. Really good in that. Paul Schofield, Quiz Show. Gary Sinise and Forrest Gump. We remember those performances. We did a retrospective on this year where we talked about Schofield and his Quiz Show as well. Sam Jackson is awesome. Does he beat out Martin Landau? I don't know, but he's worthy, I think, in this this instance. If people knew then what we've come to know some 20-some-odd years now, later now about the Ezekiel speech and about that whole performance, I think there might have been more credit to it, because I'm more impressed the Ezekiel speech was kind of all bullshit. It's not in the Bible except for the last two sentences of it, yeah. so I think that might have helped his chances, but it's tough to pick against Martin Landau. I probably would have gone Gary Sinise, honestly. And we're going to talk about this in the next episode, but to foreshadow it now, I think Samuel Jackson was the lead in this movie. It's arguable. He's the protagonist. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the, the arc, the movie is his. Right. I, I, it's tough to disagree. It's definitely an, it. an, an argument that you could win. And I wonder if that could have, you know, if we're analyzing this category back in 94 or 95, I'm probably voting for Samuel, even though I love Martin Landau. But that was just a legacy pick there. Yeah. That had to go. Yeah, a couple. Paul Schofield was in there, too. He was an older actor at the time, so... I, I was impressed, though, probably most impressed, and I, we're going to get to it, and he was nominated for a lead. I was blown away by Travolta in this. Yeah, I thought excellent. he was phenomenal. He's at rock bottom, man. Everybody thinks he's done. He's fat. He's out of shape. And he's, these are his words. He's like, I'm fat now. I'm out of shape. I don't want to do the dancing scene. And, of course, Quentin Tarantino's whole reason for putting him in the movie was get John Travolta dancing, dancing again, on camera, yeah. which is brilliant. And, boom, Academy Award nomination, A-lister for the rest of his life, no matter what. And... It's, this is going to sound really mean, and I don't mean it to, but to see Travolta, what we've come to know from him since the 2000s up until now, to just see him be so good, it's a little off-putting, honestly. Well, he does face-off. He does Broken Arrow. He does these goofy movies. Over-the-top action movies, yeah. yeah. And this is like a subtle, he needs to play an addict, he needs to be looking all around, he needs to be in and out of conversations. It's really good he does a lot of over the top stuff after this yeah. and he, he's got the few gems along the way that we really like uh like drugstore cowboy was originally sure. and you know he, he has his moments and this is one of those moments so tom hanks wins for forrest gump you had morgan freeman from shawshank nigel hawthorne from the madness of king george and paul newman for nobody's fool Hawthorne was great, Freeman was great, Hanks was great, tough for Travolta Loaded to break through. Year. Loaded year. Performance that's arguably a supporting performance. Right. So, I mean, even though there's there's a lot for him there, but this is a, kind of a three-hander, four-hander, whatever you want to call it. That's best actor. In terms of best supporting actress, Diane Wiest wins for Bullets Over Broadway. You had Rosemary Harris from Tom and Viv. Helen Mirren from The Madness of King George. Jennifer Tilly from Bullets Over Broadway. And, of course, Uma 
that, you know, it's Diane Weiss, tough to argue with. Bullets Over Broadway got a lot of love, and I remember watching that and being pretty disappointed. This it's is, all right. This is 90. It's Woody Allen, Bullets Over Broadway. It's you got to recognize him. He's supposed to be the king of this and that. And I don't know. Was it worthy of all those nominations at the time, now looking back? It's, it's a good, but I figured the crowd pleaser would have won something somewhere here. But I don't know. One maybe screenplay. And one screenplay. <laughs> and that's kind of where everybody pitches right. the new scary movie exactly. that's exactly. going to innovate. Did I ever tell you I played Blackjack next to Jennifer Tilly once? Yeah, oh, all you right. did. I want to make it's sure it's, that's known. That's Oscar nominated Jennifer Tilly? Played, Oscar played nominated. Blackjack next so the, the rest of this cast is awesome, Mike. I wanted to know well, who was your favorite of the ensemble, the rest of that ensemble, you oh, know, the man. bit parts. Mine is Miss Villa Lobos in that cab. I love Angela Jones there. I thought that was so, so weird. So creepy. So fun. <laughs> so creepy. Creepy, and a decision creepy. I guess made by Quentin just because he liked her character from Curdled, a short film yeah. that she was in, where she was fascinated by dead bodies and killers. Right, creepy. <laughs> I, it's it's the most one of the more bizarre scenes in the entire movie. She's probably the most memorable performance, just because yeah. to me it kind of sticks out most yeah. in a movie that's all over the place. This one scene that's doesn't feel like it fits, kind of sticks out most. Fabian was really good, too. I mean, Dave Medeiros there, she did a hell of a job. Uh, Stoltz is kind of fun, and Arquette, Rosanna Arquette is fun, too. I thought Stoltz at first, the first time I watched this, I thought I was convinced it was Gary Oldman. And at one they point, at one point it was going to be Gary Oldman, yeah. I know that. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought Stoltz was great as well. All right, so let's get into the homages segment now. This is our non-spoiler script thoughts. We'll have an Oscar lens on screenplay coming up. So obviously Tarantino wrote this script to comment on three of the most repeated tropes of crime cinema and really crime fiction. Hitmen on the job, especially movies that start that way. You have the gangster who has to take the boss's wife out on the town and not touch her, as Tarantino says. Very chauvinistic plot line, but again, an old chestnut. That's a trope? Yeah, I guess so. That's a t- Is that a trope? I think so. I mean, you watch old-timey movies and you got these... You know, don't touch the boss's wife, see? I guess. All right. And you have the boxer who has to throw the fight, but doesn't. Those are repeated storylines. Yeah, I think some of them can last, and some of them age better than others. Elmore Leonard novels come into play here, of course, because, as Quentin states, he was binge-reading all of these before and during his writing of the screenplay out there in Amsterdam. Tarantino gushes in every interview that he also loves how main characters in one story could be supporting characters in another. Sure, and that's where your argument about whether Travolta's a lead or not, or Jackson's a lead or not, comes into play, because they do alternate. He loves how Basically, he wanted to put each one of these chestnuts, each one of these stories that are are archetypal, I guess, for the genre and have them go off the rails because basically he wanted to take 1920s, 30s, old school and bring it new school by having these stories that we're accustomed to or that he was accustomed to go crazy. That's where the name comes from, too. The Pulp Fiction. It's based on, it's the ideas that these stories are based on these over-the-top magazines, comic books that were around in the 20s and 30s that had a gratuitous violence and, and some sex in them, and he wanted to present that to the forefront and kind of shock viewers here. That's how it got its name. Do you think, we're going to do Death Proof later on, but do you think when he was producing Death Proof, it was going to be as big of a hit? Do you think he, in his mind, this is going to be as big of a hit as Pulp Fiction because me and Robert Rodriguez were on top of the mountain. We're doing this grindhouse thing. Maybe. I could see it. 
I could see that conversation in my mind taking place. Let's but, go back to yeah. where we came from. Pulp Fiction really started the, you know, it's an interesting meteoric question, rise. Yeah. I don't know. Because Tarantino's, while he does have the capability to be humble, at times he also chooses not to be in his history. He does. He's got that, <laughs> you know, unleashed it at times. Yeah. All right, so here are the homages. The dance scene at Jack Rabbit Slims, everybody attributes it to Godard's bands of Outsiders and Fellini's Eight and a Half. Tarantino does reference both of those dance scenes that come out of nowhere as something that he loves about both filmmakers' works. And, of course, uh, you watch the Fellini scene, it's basically the twist scene. I was going to ask you, because I, I don't think I've seen any of these three that are referenced here. So you've seen Fellini's Eight yeah, and a Half. Yeah, and Band of Outsiders. They're very addictive watches, the both of them. And yeah, I mean, to totally just break out into a dance scene out of nowhere. And then Fellini, he's kind of Travolta dancing. Whoever the guy, I think Mastriani in that scene is is dancing uh, in like this park with all these fountains. And it's mm. gorgeous and it's black and white. And yeah, they're doing the same kind of thing here. The briefcase MacGuffin Mike is most attributed to 1955's Kiss Me Deadly. It was a briefcase filled with some kind of nuclear material inside right. of there. I don't know if it's supposed to be like Mission Impossible Fallout and you got the uh, the capsules full of unobtainium or whatever the hell. What's the basic matter for Plutonium. Plutonium, thank you. A doomed female hitchhiker pulls Mike Hammer, great name, into a deadly <laughs> whirlpool of intrigue revolving around a mysterious great what's-it by yeah. Robert Aldrich. Talk about a great what's-it. Robert Aldrich, <laughs> yeah, very influential filmmaker. You have Ezekiel twenty-five seventeen, Mike. The beginning is not really a Bible verse, as you mentioned. Yeah. It's really a speech from 1976's Sonny Chiba film, The Bodyguard. And it's literally in the opening crawl of The Bodyguard, where Chiba is kind of talking about shepherds and good people versus bad people kind of thing and that is the preface to this whole bible verse that the end of it is actual bible verse but the beginning not so much it's interesting that you're comfortable just misquoting the bible and having that go on to be one of the most remembered scenes i don't know that even, even if i had full total control of a film that i would be comfortable in just misrepresenting some I understand the religious implications, but just the historical document of it and yeah. just misquoting it and purposefully, knowingly misquoting it like that, it, it takes some either stones or some laissez-faire. Audacity. Yeah. Uh, of course, Sonny Chiba will eventually play Hattori Hanzo, I believe, and kill Bill. So that's that's really cool how that you know interconnects as well. All the weapons in the pawn shop, I won't go into the spoiler, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sure. Friday the 13th Part 2, Walking Tall, and of course, Lightning Swords of Death, Michael. These are all weapons that are referenced specifically. I don't know what the baseball bat, I think that's Walking Tall. That's Walking Tall. Okay, yeah. so all of those weapons are references to favorite you know, action films of Tarantino's. I also think there's some groundwork laid in there for a Kill Bill series coming up, so... Yeah. Just want to point that out. All right, so let's finish with that Oscar lens, Mike. We have best screenplay written directly for the screen. Pulp Fiction does win it. Oscars go to Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. We had Bullets Over Broadway, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Heavenly Creatures, the Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh movie, and Red by Kieslowski. Kristoff <laughs> Kieslowski, I think. Kieslowski-wits? And Kristoff Pisevitz, I think. 
Uh, that's my Polish coming in, but I think that's how you pronounce that. My apologies Very if good. it's not. Can you imagine if Four Weddings and a Funeral won over Pulp Fiction for original <laughs> screenplay? <laughs> We'd be angrier than we've ever been. So what was more rightful for Pulp Fiction to win in your eyes just as an Oscars critic? Should this have been more an original screenplay win or should it have been more a Best Director win? So we said last year, I thought two years ago get out should have won best director mm-hmm. over best screenplay and i take think the politics out of it take that it's the new shiny right. thing and it's going to be pigeonholed into the screenplay so my answer is this is what the academy typically does they pigeonhole mm-hmm. the new thing into the screenplay category as if sure. all of the innovations are done on the page yeah does this earn a screenplay win yeah it does i mean get out for me or ladybird for me could have been worthy of both those awards mm-hmm. but it's weird how they allocate credit and they typically do it in this fashion as we've come to know but my in my mind i think it's he's just as worthy of a director award as he is a screenplay if you're going to give him one award why is it screenplay over director? Because he gets just as fancy and it iconic must with director. Be that the, and this is why Oscars are such a fickle thing when you look back in time. Yes, what Robert Zemeckis did in Forrest Gump isn't as impressive now with how, what we see on screen and how far VFX have come. But I, yeah. it must be at the time that it was such a big deal for Zemeckis to do what he did in Forrest Gump and put the main character into all those historical well-known Yeah, but that's featurettes. editing credit, right? Well, it means they're going to get... Sure. Like, and I yeah, think I mean, Sally that's a fair Menke, argument. Sally Menke could have got, got that, you know, editing credit for different things by doing everything she does here so well. I mean, just the superimposition, because that must have been a fix. The superimposition before the outfit reveal of the two hitmen was brilliant. <laughs> Not superimposition, but fade to black, and right. come back again. Brilliant. Yeah. And hilarious because you think you're getting out of that scene, but nope, now you got the goofy outfits. Unless the, the, the fallback thinking is that it took Zemeckis having the vision to do it, to pull it off, to put it into editing, to even attempt it. Yeah. So there's a litany of, of things that could be what How it's. How about knows. VFX, though? Yeah. Darn it. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you there, obviously, especially. And time has proven. I think there's a lot of people that love Forrest Gump, and I understand that. I'm not and never have been one of those people. Yeah. But I think. The conventional thinking at large is that this movie did more for filmmaking and is a more well-known and long-standing uh, legacy than something like Forrest Gump. They wind up looking stupid. And it's crazy because they'll give Tarantino this award, but they won't give it to Spike Lee years earlier yeah. for Do the Right Thing. Well, it's the same, you know, you could say the same thing about draft nicks that want to criticize a draft class in any professional sport the day of, as yeah. opposed to waiting the five years and looking back and seeing what happens. True. Very, very true. And I guess that's our non-spoiler section. Yeah, so we're going to stop it here because, you know, we're only 75 minutes into the... No, it's like close to 60, (laughs) I think, before editing. So we're going to stop it here. This will be a two-parter, like we said at the top. Uh, We're going to have a Pulp Fiction two-parter. We're going to do our spoiler section. So be sure you come back for that. We're going to have a scene reenactment that'll act as our spoiler warning. And then also following up with Trademark Tarantino. We're going to have a whole bunch, everything about the twists and turns of the movies, commenting on it. And it's really going to be, hopefully, a historical moment for us because this is a very historical movie and we have a lot to say about it and we kind of knew going into this recording that this was going to be a multi-part recording yeah good things and bad too we're gonna have some for sure for certain to breathe on this movie at the end of it as well so obviously about the non-spoiler stuff about anything we do in the mmo empire as always we want your comments questions concerns anything that you feel we should highlight or anything that we if you have any corrections for us in the you know the specs or anything we talked about with the script and how it was handled we'd love to hear it make sure you reach out to us mike mike and oscar on facebook mike mike and oscar on instagram mm and oscar on twitter mike mike and oscar at gmail 
gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts. Tune in Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc., etc. Uh, if you can leave us a, a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell it's going to be called once iTunes goes away, we would really appreciate that. Michael, any words of wisdom? And uh, I guess what's coming next is Tarantino spoiler section. So yeah. words of wisdom to end on here. Sorry, Bob Dole. 265 <laughs> F-words in this script. Here's your Oscar. Yeah. We don't care. And that's wild because the most irreverent part of this movie, the script, with all the profanity and obscenity, that's what they get their award for. Yeah. When you could have given it like to polish filmmaking areas like editing or director <laughs> or whatever. Very weird. Maybe they think that the big five is what matters most, so they want to give it to screenplay over editing. I don't know. I don't know. Just award the best. Why can't we do that? Why start now? Guys, when reality sucks, come watch movies with us. We will see you in a couple days or maybe a day with the spoiler section for Pulp Fiction. See you.